0: Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. It does sound rather exciting, Jim. Hello, welcome. This is David Eastall. This is the C86 Show. Always bringing you the finest in indie pop and much, much, much more. As you know, we'd love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of J.G. Ballard, who I tracked down very recently was in New York. Indeed, true story. Anyway, this is going to be the interview. And uh, for those who go, hmm, what bands were he in? He was in lots, including the famous, the very famous Scrape and Fetus of the Wheel and much, much more. So we're going to uh, cut the chat and play the next, well, the interview. I know. And after about five minutes of chatting and passing interesting information and facts and figures and all that kind of stuff, this is it. And this is the bit where um, I got to that point where I said, can't you give us a bit of background to your life story? And begin at the beginning. And this was the start. This is J.G. Thurwell talking about his life from the beginning. Thank you. Enjoy.
1: Well, I I was born in 1960. um, And so... I was, um, you know, I I was obsessed with music from as early as I could remember. I mean, one of my early memories is singing, is being in, I went to kindergarten very young. I was about three, uh, I was three or four or something. And um, I remember singing an Elvis Presley song to one of the girls in the kindergarten, Viva Las Vegas. Um, and the first band I ever saw was the Monkees when I was about eight years old. Wow, that's cool. Um, Um, so, uh, I, I do wish that I was a bit more culturally aware in the sixties. I was, I listened to the radio a lot and I loved music and, um, but I was born in, in Melbourne, Australia. And so the, the culture that came to Australia was kind of, you know, we're part of the Commonwealth and so there was a lot of British culture that came and British television, but there was also American culture that came and, um, and it's a small country. And there was, there was also, um, Australian culture. There was Australian bands and I'm, I'm one of those, um, self hating Australians, um, where, um, Barry, I've recently saw a quote from Barry Humphreys where he mentions the cultural cringe. And I think that, that, um, probably people from smaller countries feel this where you feel culturally inferior to United States and the UK um where when i was coming up you know the the local music felt inferior you know yes and, and also my mother is scottish and so when i was growing up i i, I you know we would go to scotland every couple of years and i would spend a the month there and through that i would i would watch top of the pops and and um be you know um uh, be infected by all that and uh you know i remember going to you know in 1968 going to carnaby street in london and stuff like that and uh and you know i would buy records there and stuff and and um not in Carnaby Street, but by you know, I started buying records in you know, when I was 10 years old or something.
0: Yeah,
1: um, so I'm of the generation where you know, a lot of you know, one of the early early records I bought was like Jethro Tull, Thick as a Brick, um, and I loved that, but I was also of the generation that was um, heavily um, swept away by glam rock, and I loved. Bowie, Alice Cooper, sensational Alex Harvey band, um, sparks, Roxy music, stuff like that. When I was a kid and much like, you know, some of those con- contemporaries, then when I was 17, that was, I was 17 in 1977 and I was swept up by, you know, punk rock. And that was like the, it was, um, the musical liberation of that, um, where, you know, you didn't have to be a, um, um, a virtuoso to play an instrument.
0: Yes, cause so, we, we, yeah. but were you still in Australia at that point? Because cause, yeah. cause you had bands like the Saints and then you had Radio Birdman, the famous Radio Birdman. And then and that kind of Australian scene that was kind of happening sort of. It was starting to happen like bands like the Die Pretty and um, the Go Betweens, and, and I suppose the early Triffids. They probably weren't there quite there.
1: I'd, I'd already left by the I left Australia in 1978. Oh, no, right. I, I didn't go, I didn't, and I moved to London and I didn't go back for 32 years. And so anything that happened after that, I have no, I don't have much of an awareness about. Yes. Uh, um, but I did see the saints in about in probably 77 or seven. Yeah. Around about then, And, and they, it was interesting because they, they developed concurrently to the Ramones, but had a similar sound. Um, and when I saw them, it was one of, it was, they were like one of the fastest bands I'd ever seen. And they were also kind of out there. I mean, um, in in terms of like, Chris Bailey, the singer, was—he drank a. Seemed to drink. I, I, I seem to remember he drank a bottle of Jack Daniels when he was on stage, and um, he was by the end he was like lying on his back, and and it was, you know, it was intense. You know, it was it was great, but um, but I was swept up by what was happening, and 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 also as a kid I was feverishly reading Enemy and Sounds and and the and British and the UK press, like scene and stuff like that. yeah uh, Well,
0: because it was interesting because you mentioned um – uh, Barry Humphreys, because actually it was Barry Humphreys, was it Clive James, and the author or writer Robert Hughes. They all came from Australia and sort of appeared in, in um, London, didn't they, in the sort of late 60s. So there seems to be this uh, escape, from, uh, escape from Australia and sort of come to yep. London to um, seek your fame fortune. I suppose it's also a cultural thing, because I saw Barry Humphreys a few years ago doing the music of the Weimar Republic. Yeah. With an artist called Meow Meow or something mm-hmm. like that, and um, yes, he was fascinating. I'd also seen him as um, Dame Edna as well. So when you got to to um, London, were you, was it the was it your sort of intention to sort of form music or just?
1: Yeah, I mean, I knew that I was. I I told you know I was still living at home, and I I graduated uh, high school when I was yeah I'm, I was sixteen, and I went to art school for two years after that. Um, and I knew that that was great because it, you know, it helped me develop my, you know, some of my style and visual arts, but also it helped me decide what I wanted to do. And I knew that I wanted to do in something in music, but I didn't know what, and I was swept up by the excitement of what was happening in the UK. And I decided, I just packed a couple of bags and I knew I was never going back. And I just, um, just said I was going on vacation and I knew I, I wouldn't go back, but, um, um, so I landed in London in late 1978, and um, it was right around the time that Public Image was doing their first shows. And um, uh, I got a, you know, basically got a bed sit and uh, bought a. I, I had you know i had been playing bass guitar in melbourne and i'd learned a couple of instruments but when i landed in london i got another bass guitar and uh i started making tapes and i bought my first synthesizer and uh and i saw tons of music i went to see tons of bands and um and i got a job at, eventually got a job at virgin records um in oxford walk and uh which was on oxford street um between Oxford Circus and Tottenham Court Road, and I worked there for a couple of years. But so I worked for Virgin for three years, some for a while there, and then at the at this warehouse that they had in Acton, which was um, uh, attached to the Caroline Warehouse, and there at that point we were um, buying centrally buying independent albums and seven inches and 12 inches for the entire chain. And I was the buyer of seven and 12 inches for the chain of like 17 stores. And so I would order from, you know, the independent distributors and then distribute direct, we distributed directly to the stores from there. So I would buy from Rough Trade and Red Rhino and whatever. And um, yes. and so so through, through that, you know, I got a really deep insight into how, the music business worked. This was also the dawn of um, independent. You know, this was the the start of the explosion of independent labels. And you know, I, every Saturday I'd go to Rough Trade and find the new things that had come that were coming out. And and through the record store, I was discovering everything and uh, um, and also meeting people. And um, that was a, you know, and that's and that's where I met Steve Stapleton from Nursing with Wound. And he he worked down the street from there, and then we started hanging out, and then I started working with him, and uh, and I joined a group for about um, nine months, which was a group that was was formed from the ashes of PragVec, and PragVec was a, a London band that put out two two singles, um, and I'd seen them play live many times, and I'd liked them, um, so they put together a project which was named after their record label called Spec Records. And we made, um, we made an album and it was at that time when I was playing with other people that, um, I came to the realization that I didn't really like the democratic process in creativity. And, uh, that was the impetus for me to go into the studio. And, um, in one day I recorded, the a and b side and mixed the first fetus single which came out in uh came out on the first of january 1981 and it was fetus under glass um okay fm and um so that was where the fetus journey began
0: yes because well, uh, it's because it's interesting because a lot of people I've spoke to the democratic process has been in the band doesn't doesn't work work out it takes some people it took you months but it's taken some people decades to sort of realize that they just need to be the they just need to have their name on everything and everyone else just has to tell do what they say
1: well it's not that I need my name on everything although I do need <laughs> my name on everything but um but even even in my collab my collab- most of my collaborations i tend to i mean i'm getting better at it I'm actually um uh working a lot with this guy Simon Haynes, who I've been working with in the last few years, and we have some songwriting you know kind of a songwriting partnership and I've gotten a lot better at um at you know trying not to dominate. The, the proceedings you know and um, and having a having a, a an actual back and forth with someone you know um, and that ta- that t- it's taken a little um, learning you know self learning for me um, because a lot of the time my tendency is to steer the ship you know.
0: Yes. Well, I think, you know, I think, well, most people start in a sort of in a slightly idealistic way. And in the early 80s, we were very idealistic, really. It was a very sort of, I don't know, socialist workers party and Eton TVP and sort of trying to be all sharing and caring and and cooperatives. Until be- about,
1: up until about 82 or 83, which is where, I, which this is what I think. Um, I think that 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 I agree that there was an idealism and there was definitely an idealism with independent labels. And I, I shared that idealism, which was, um, uh, you know, shunning, you know, corporate backing and not compromising and doing whatever, doing exactly what you want and not compromising your artistic vision. And, um, the ethos of the self distribution was, was also a part of the core of what I was doing and certainly what a lot of groups were doing. And if you look at a band like, say, security Polity, their first single, it had printed on the cover how much it cost them to make it. And um, there were bands like the Desperate Bicycles who were saying it's easy and cheap, go and do it and saying, you know, you can go and make your own single. And um, there was a, you know, Bands like Crass who were putting out singles for 45p and they, everyone was exposing the me- mechanics of the process, you know, so here's three chords, go and do it, you know, and that de- democ- democratized the whole process. And so a lot of people were picking up instruments for the first time and m- not necessarily playing them conventionally, but making interesting sounds. So it was more about ideas than it was musical proficiency. But then I think that our, um, even if you, if you look at, so I mentioned Scritty Polity, but if you look at their trajectory, um, by 1983 or 84, they were making this sort of silky smooth soul and, you know, spending, you know, probably tens of thousands of pounds in the studio and bands like, um, bands like ABC who had come out out of Sheffield from the ashes of vice versa started to have this ethos of, okay, let's, make some money you know let's make pop hits you know um and i think that around about 82 83 things started to change like that like this there was this let's make money cynicism that was um you know starting to to uh to um infect everything
0: yeah because I being, a, being the sort of indie kid, sort of fan who was kind of buying the NME on a Wednesday and taping the John Peel show, I mean there were kind of two camps, weren't there? There was the sort of the Trevor Horn kind of production sound of ABC and Frankie, and and I suppose the bands like you know Spandau Bally. and then you had all this sort of other strange and wonderful bands like Bogshed and Stump and the Shrubs and Big Flame. So you know that John Peel was kind of champion day and night, and and I suppose I went in the latter for various reasons. My mostly That's, because of insecurity and not loneliness
1: to say that, not to say that those those two camps were um at war or independent of each other because a lot there was a lot of cross pollination of you know going on as well um and there and it was like in in indie Independent music in some ways was starting to get swallowed by its own success. And you look like, looked at bands at singles like, say, Spiz Energy, Where's Captain Kirk, or Pig Bag. I mean, I remember these from working in the record stores, just the volume of copies that we would sell of these records, like Pig Bag, Papa's Got a Brand New Pig Bag, and Joy Division, Level Terrace Apart, Bauhaus, Bella Lugosi's Dead. These records were selling tens of thousands of copies, you know. Um, And In some ways, um, independent music, you know, then, you know, some years later, Rough Trade went bankrupt and it was kind of swallowed by its own success, you know. Um, And, you know, it took took a leveling period for that, you know, to happen. And, you know, I I put out my first two uh, albums myself and three seven inches and a 12 inch EP. And then I got involved with. This label some bizarre um, who I was introduced to by Matt Johnson from the, the who was a good friend of mine um, and then they subsequently put out my next few albums and they and that was a different setup they were a uh, Kind of an independent label, but they 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 they, they were um, an imprint that signed bands and then farmed them out to different labels. So they had Soft Cell, who were signed to Phonogram, but they and they had the, the, that was signed to Epic, and then I was independent. But then they also had Test Department and Cabaret Voltaire and um, Psychic TV and um, you know farming different bands onto different labels and he was i mean Steve-O, who was heading some bazaar was a um a kind of a you know maverick um record label guy who um who kind of in in the same way in he was promoting the bands but he was also promoting his own personality and he was you know in in a kind of a Malcolm McLaren type sense where he was um championing a, a kind of a um, screw the record industry um, attitude or, you know, um, and basically, you know, writing the success of Soft Cell nice. um, and using that to facilitate um, giving access to these other groups like myself and and Cabaret Voltaire and, and Test Department and so on and, and even getting Saki TV on a major label, which was uh, pretty strange, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Because you know, because during the eighties,
0: which was quite interesting. At that point, you know, the, that early eighties, and obviously, you slightly aren't part of that because there's a lot of people who were unemployed at that stage. And I sort of interviewed, you know, a lot of bands, and it was a kind of a period where people were just signing on because there wasn't much else to do, especially those in the north of the country and then there was kind of things like the job seekers allowance or the enterprise lands where you could be a year as a sort of self-employed you, you could sort of go off the record of being unemployed and be on this kind of like you were sort of a self-employed artist or musician so a lot of bands did that as long as you could prove you had a thousand pound in the bank account which is a bit odd because obviously you were only sort of claiming 30 pound sort of dole money which was not quite sure how you managed to suddenly convince you know should have, have the you know, bank statement with a thousand pound seemed a bit dodgy looking back on it but obviously Obviously, that gave a lot of people the idea that well, we might as well be in a band as just not do anything so that that kind of created a lot of music, especially during that period, and then sort of obviously from there, from sort of 83 to 87, was I, I sort of put down as the glorious years of indie pop, basically they're the mm. years of the Smiths, um, because that was the jingly jangly. but you, you sort of don't really fit into that kind of, that cliche, do you, of those kind of bands, because a lot of people who I interview always, I, was,
1: I, was, I was the anti-Jingle Jangle.
0: You were so anti-Jingle Jangle, because you had the bands like you know, everyone always talks about, you know, the go-betweens, Orange Juice, the June Brides and the Smiths as being so hugely influential, and then, you know, John Peel. playing some kind of weird and wonderful stuff that we all sort of grew to love for various reasons from i did
1: i did um i did um i did work with orange juice a bit um i actually edwin collins was a a friend of a friend of mine and um i had um a prejudice against orange juice and the whole postcard sound because I thought it was kind of wimpy. And I had said to this person that when I met Edwin Collins, I was going to push him backwards downstairs. And so I then, then I soon after that, I met Edwin and he he said, Oh Jim, I hear you're going to push me downstairs. And so, (laughs) and we actually became really good friends. And, um, when they did, when they had their hit with rip it up, um, they, got me to come on top of the pops with them and mime the sax solo. I didn't play it on on um, their record, but um, I was playing a bit of sax at the time and they got me to mime the sax solo. And I then actually went on to play uh, at one of their live shows. I played the sax solo um, and I did some writing with them on the subsequent record. I played piano on one track and I wrote a a sort of a bridge in one of the songs. but um, I I moved to New York in 1983, and um, my my experience of the 80s is different to that um, sort of what you're describing. as that sort of that Smith era um, independent sound. I mean, my my the 80s that I uh, experienced was more about like so, Sonic Youth, Swans, Einstürzende Neubauten, um, and the whole kind of US noise scene, like Big Black and um, Butthole Surfers and and stuff like that, you know, um, among other things, you know, I mean, I was in New York, so there's a lot going on. that's well,
0: I suppose my favourite band at that time, which started to appear, was kind of Huskadoo who I thought were just amazing. So you know, yes, the 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 curiosity of the you know Lydia Lunch and people like um, I don't know something '69. I think they did. She did a version of
1: '69.
0: Yes, so that was kind of, and I suppose again, you know, there were these gatekeepers, and like the NME was one because they had such a sort of circulation, and obviously there was Melody Maker and Sounds and. I think Record Mirror, Mirror, but also John Peel, you know, a John Peel play. And then a session would sort of get people quite a big kind of exposure, which was kind of yep. handy. So when you went to New York, how did you find that after London, though?
1: Oh, it was the antithesis of what I was used to in London. I was in London for five years um, and I didn't intend to move to New York, but I came here um to to do a performance with Lydia and Nick Cave and Mark Almond we had a project of the four of us which was under the name the Immaculate Consumptive and we did two shows at Eteria in New York and one show at the 930 Club in DC and when I hit New York it was so different to London I mean London is, is still you know is um extremely spread out and and New York at the time was extremely compact I mean most people that I knew and most things that were happening were in the East Village which is between 14th Street and Houston Street which is 14 blocks and and bounded on each side by like Alphabet City and Broadway so it's a and you can walk everywhere it was a 24-hour city whereas in In London, the pubs closed at 11 and the tubes stopped at midnight Um, and uh, a totally different vibe. And I really fell in love with that. And so I I didn't intend to, but I just kind of stayed in New York. And I I went um, I think I went back to I stayed in in the States for several months and I was still in the middle of doing some recordings. I was going back and forth to London a little bit and doing some recordings and um but had pretty much settled in New York at that point.
0: Yeah. So how did you sort of start to develop this sort of album that was going to come out in eighty four whole? I mean did that sort of did that all sort of get created when you were in New York, sort of written, recorded
1: and No, that was before I that was before I moved to New York. It was I, I did the whole thing before um the Immaculate Consumptive shows. But it came out. I would finished it by about September eighty three, but it didn't come out for a year because they were trying to figure out which labels it would it was gonna be on. Um so that whole thing that was um financed by Some Bazaar. It was actually financed by I think a a publishing deal that Some Bazaar had gotten me. Um and uh I had sort of reached I'd gone with the uh, albums and singles that I'd released myself. I'd kind of gone as far as I could in an eight track studio. So this was moving to a 24 track studio. And so I was like a kid in the candy store. It was, um, it really allowed me to sonically realize my visions and, um, experiment and take what I'd done, um, take my vision, you know, way, way further Yes, uh, And um so yeah it's it 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 uh it was a, it was a real milestone for me.
0: Yeah, and can you remember you know when there was a track on the album I'll meet you in Poland baby. Can you remember that sort of process of putting that you know writing it and putting that um on record.
1: Yeah, that was um I mean that's still one of my favorite songs that I've written and um that was The the technology at that time, it was pre-MIDI and pre-sampling. And I I had always done experiments in the studio where uh, I, you know, was kind of influenced by a lot of um, 20th century classical music and stuff like Steve Reich's early tape experiments. Um, And so so in the studio, I was making tape loops and um, getting sounds from... You know, sound effects records or sample like what later be started to be called samples. But I would I would prepare sounds on cassettes and then I would use the pause button on the cassette player and vary speed on the multi track to spin them into the um, into the music um, as well as using live instruments and and on that particular song, it's, I think it took five days to record. Um, I started it with a click track and putting down the the, vo- the vocal for on the first verse. And then what I did was I, I grabbed with a, using a, um, a, a, a delay, um, which at that point had a little lock-in function on it, which was a kind of a new thing. So I would grab the last word of each line and then it would loop and I'd have to use the um, tweak the uh the knob on the delay to keep it in time with the click track so it was all done manually and it was very time consuming this is something that you could do on a laptop now in like two seconds and it took all day to do um so anyway that that created these loops of words that um that i'd sung and then that was the basic foundation that i then cut up and then i started overdubbing instruments on that and, um, and then started flying and then, uh, I created tape loops of my voice, um, singing, you know, like, um, singing tones and harmonies and so on. And those I used, um, very speed on to, to pitch to the track. And then I would build those up and then make mix sub mixes of those. And, um, yeah, it was very involved.
0: Yes. Because, you know, cause a lot of people, you know, they, trying to sort of get the sound they want recorded and finding someone to do that for them, you know, like the engineer and et cetera, is quite tricky. Did you, did were you able to sort of get what you wanted and not sort of feel afterwards, God, that's a bit disappointing, but, you know, I just. Now,
1: I had the luxury of the, the time to to perfect what I wanted. And also I was lucky enough to have chosen, I did some shopping about for, for the studio that I wanted and I chose this studio, Wave Studios, which is in, Hoxton Square, and Hoxton was not what Hoxton Square is now um or b- became um like in the nineties I guess um, and the there there were two house engineers working there, Warren Livesey and Charles Gray, and I worked with both of them, and both of them were very um open to what I wanted to do and also very creative and they had good ideas and I would describe what I wanted to do and they would say oh well we could try this we could try that. Um, so uh, you know that was the whole thing was very um, fortuitous and it was a good place to work and it, was, it wasn't was super expensive and um, yeah so I was able to stretch out and realize these things. Um, and go down some pretty wacky paths
0: yes because your follow-up album which came out the following year though i'm sort of not completely sure what when you actually recorded it but that that was also recorded and engineered in the uk as well in london wasn't it even though you were in new
1: york yeah that yeah that i was traveling back and forth um to do to do that one and um that you know between hole and nail there had been um some fairly large leaps in technology and midi had come in and sampling had come in and I used a lot of Fairlight on that second on, on nail on the subsequent album and um, um, it's a totally different approach and so I you know and then I was using an SSL mixing desk which is automated um, so it was it was really a a, a different you know technological time
0: yes I mean, were you, because that, you know, the first, first album came out and it did really well on the charts, didn't it? So you must have felt really, I mean... Well, that's
1: actually my third album, but, yeah, but the, the first Sun Bizarre album. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that did well, yeah. Well, they both did well, actually.
0: It did. And were you,
1: because
0: obviously being an artist and you put something out, you have no idea if it's going to sort of sink or swim and then to sort of find yourself, you know really high in the charts on the album charts must've felt like, Oh, did there are people out there who love me? They want, they want more.
1: Um, I didn't, <laughs> but no, that's not necessarily what you think, but, um, it's, it's, uh, you know that you're selling records. You don't know if people are loving you or not.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but you had fans and you had people who was obviously, you know, like you built up quite a sort of, um, I don't know, quite, quite a fan base. And, and I was just thinking when you brought out the next album, which was now, which was, eight, you know, the mid 80s, I mean, you did sort of have the, you know, your, I suppose it's the classic song, the, the throng of agony as well, didn't you sort of, so things must have been creatively, you must have been sort of on a bit of a roll at this stage
1: um oh yeah yeah i guess so i mean i think i'm still creatively on a roll to be honest
0: yes because i have i interviewed momus who was talking about he brought out an album a year throughout the 80s which he sort of i think just about managed to do so you you were also sort of pretty well sort of what must have been 24 7 working on on the sort of project that is you know the band and and your own sort of output so did you was it was it the only thing you were focused on at this, this stage of your life
1: no i mean uh i think i'm I'm actually way more prolific now than I was back then um, especially because I have my own studio now um but but also um yeah, I did work faster you know i I did work quite quickly in those days and I think when you start a project like I'd started fetus you, you're starting with a blank canvas and um you don't know what it's what it's going to be necessarily or there's there's a a lot of possibilities and but by the time you've made a few records you're you're starting to make um you're starting to create a sound and you're starting to create some parameters that that you work within um fetus was a was a very broad um had very broad parameters um it could be you know i did i did I had tracks on albums which were just made up of tape loops and um, not necessarily any musical instruments. And then I'd have tracks with more conventional musical instruments. And then I had cinematic um, instrumentals and, um, and then more kind of noise pieces and then, you know, more rock songs. And so it was all over the map. And that's why I changed the name quite often because different versions of fetus had different intentions. Um, then I stopped changing the fetus names, you know, cause I, you know, there were names like scraping fetus off the wheel. You've got fetus on your breath, fetus interruptus. Then I, after, after, uh, by about 1990, I, I just settled on fetus, but then I started other projects like steroid Maximus, which, um, which where I, you know, I could start with a blank canvas, which didn't have any rules and it didn't have a sound. And, um, I could I could use that as a framework to do different things in, you know.
0: Yes. But just going slightly back to 88 when you brought out Thor, was that an album that you, you know kind of um what's going to say? It was kind of like it was quite a harsh album in places and some sort yeah. of like slightly Steve Albini kind of moments on it. You know, slightly I suppose you seem to be were you a bit more angry at that album?
1: Oh yeah, that was a very hateful album. Yes. Um, yeah. Uh, and it's, and violent. Yeah. Um, that's, that definitely goes through it, you know? Um, and, uh, and there was a lot of, and that was all done in New York. And it was also one of the, one of the um, hallmarks of that album is that I had started to set up my own studio and I had my own sample, you know, by then I had a sampler and a computer and, um, I was doing pre-production At my studio, and then I took it to another studio to finish. Um, So the working process had changed, and there's always a, I'm you know, up, you know, throughout my career, I've always, um, you know, changed the technology in which I work, and then that's become you know, kind of reflected in um, my output, and um, so that's that's another you know step in a different direction. Yes,
0: because cause, um, sort of having interviewed a lot of bands, they they do have this kind of five-year narrative of, you know, a few people getting together, you know, three, five, you know... Indie kids, you know, they form a band, they have about twelve to eighteen months kind of messing about and doing something, you know, and if they get a single that's a bit quirky, John Peel played it, and then the John Peel session, the first album, things were going well. The second album often's going terribly badly. If anybody ever tours America, that seems to finish them off. And and so so the honey the honeymoon period after five years is over. And I just kind of wondered if you, on a personal level, even though you weren't in a band, kind of suddenly felt that things You know, you'd lost the innocence of sort of the early years somehow by the end of the decade and and things were going to have to change again.
1: Well, that whole narrative that you just described um, is really not how I went about things. Um, When I made records, I wanted to make records as an object. I didn't want to sit around in a room with a bunch of people playing instruments. You know, I didn't want a, a camaraderie. I, um, of, but, but also I'm a musical lifer, you know, um, I've always done music. I've done music for about 40 years and I can't imagine doing anything else.
0: Yes.
1: And, I, and I make music every day. Um,
0: because interesting, because most people—I say most people—but actually, there's quite. A, that's quite a large percentage. Don't you know who've been in a, you know in a band? Often then break from it and then just give it up for about thirty years before coming back to it. But there's only a few people that I really respected, who I who were hu- I'm huge fans of, and that was David Bowie and Lemmy from Motorhead. Who just kind of had one thing. It was going to be music, and that's it. There was no. There's no, I'm going to drop out and get a day job or go and work in an office. So, you know, you, you you know, and I actually, I suppose Momus and uh, Lawrence and Felt were the other two people who I've, I've interviewed, who were also on the same sort of trip that, that they were just going to make music, even if it was going to, um, I don't know.
1: But you don't know about Lemmy's Ambient albums?
0: <laughs> no, I don't.
1: Oh, they're, way, they're deep underground. Are they? You'll find them on the dark web.
0: Oh, excellent. I've never been on the dark web. Dark web. <laughs> no, there, there you go. I didn't his, it,
1: was his, it was his shadow career.
0: I would imagine so. But him and David Bowie always said, you know, when they, anybody ever asked, you know, what their musical influence, they both said Little Richard as if, you know, and then Elvis. But obviously Little Richard was their kind of go-to person. I suppose that was who they were growing up with, whereas we were talking probably about T-Rex and, I don't know, Gary Glitter, weren't we, and David Bowie. Okay.
1: Well, David Bowie was my little Richard. Yes, yeah. thankfully
0: that that was it. So then how did, and so adds add sort of, did you, you know, because your sort of output during the 90s of Game with Fetus was kind of quite prolific, you, you know, you didn't have a, uh, a break, but were you also a bit like Bowie, able to, you know, just going off, veering off into the sort of, um I don't know, off-road and doing other projects at the same time?
1: I mean, yeah, I was, I'm, uh definitely a shapeshifter when it comes to music um, and you know I whereas on fetus albums I used to you know each track used to have a different sound and a different um, trajectory and musically sound totally different then I've, I've come to instead make entire albums that would be a sound and you know I've started a lot of different projects like currently the next I've just finished two albums and uh one's coming out in april and that's a collaboration with Simon Steensland who's a composer i met in stockholm and the music on that is very i describe it as say dark dark progressive music in a in the vein of say um it's kind of chamber progressive like but in the vein of say magma or that that strain of very dark or it'd say, maybe adjacent to King Crimson or something like that, but with a very cinematic band and a kind of contemporary classical feel yes. to it um and then the other album is um under the name Zordox, which is my latest um nom de musique, which is uh, all electronic and but it's a kind of a retro electronic vibe um and that's the second album I've made under that name. And that's coming out in um, June or something like that. So, um, yeah, I tend to, you know, have, you know, then in in about 2010, I started to make records under the name JG Thurlwell, And that's, so that's my new franchise. Um, and the JG, most of the JG thorwell albums so far have been soundtracks. Um, but there's a, there's a a few more in the pipeline. Um, and they're more in the serious music world, like an album of, of string quartets, um, and a couple of albums of surround sound, um, uh, kind of, um, uh, representations of a solo, um, live performance I've been doing for the past few years. And, um, you know different things like that there will be another fetus album, but uh it's it's kind of uh, it's not on the front burner it's i've I've started it and it'll probably be the last fetus album um but you know there's uh i need i need a lot of different avenues to satisfy you know everything that i want to do.
0: Yes. And how do you know when, when you sort of start a project, you think this is going to be this character or that's going to be that, that sort of particular character? I mean, is, is it a very conscious decision at the beginning of, of, of where you're sort of placing your sort of mind and sort of sort of energy? Sometimes,
1: uh, sometimes it's a conscious decision of this will go to that project. But sometimes um, a, a song or a piece of music will migrate from one project to another i've had I've had pieces of music that I've written for manorexia migrate into fetus and um and vice versa and but normally I know what project it's going to be for um, or you know but um and a lot of, a lot of what I do is soundtracks um or commissions so um then you've got a um some per- parameters to work within yes, because because
0: of you know at the i don't know it was about two thousand and thirteen you worked uh there was an album called versions wasn't there and there was a particular track called run me out which was which was oh, yeah. which is incredibly accessible isn't it it's 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 kind of a you know it's got a beautiful vocal it's a very sort of instantly sort of catchy sort of record can you sort of can you remember sort of putting that together
1: well that's a Zola Jesus album um And she, uh, I'd known her, I I knew her work, um, but I was contacted by her management um, because she was doing a show at the Guggenheim Museum and wanted to do reinterpretations of her, her songs for string quartet. And so they came to me to do the string quartet arrangements. So I did a couple of them and sent them to them and they liked them. So I did about 10 or 11 of them and we did the show at the Guggenheim and it worked out really well. Um... So then she wanted to, to record that. So we went into the studio and recorded that with Mevo's quartet. And uh then we did some shows around it. So we played about we played several shows in the States and a few shows in um uh Europe. We played in London and Paris and Berlin. Yeah. Uh, but um that was really taking her um that was the song that she'd already written. Um, but I stripped away her instrumentation and um, and just, and you know, uh, wrote the strings around that. But I think that there may be some, some of her electronics on that one. Some of the tracks we did were just strings, and some of them um, had some other instrumentation on it.
0: Yes. And when you did, there was an album again you did with Mark Armand, which was the Flesh Felt Vol- Volcano. Yeah. I mean, what was that process like of working with someone like Mark who was, I suppose at that stage had sort of had a huge kind of success with soft cell and had various kind of ups and downs as a solo artist. So I just wondered having to collaborate with somebody like him must have been quite a different process.
1: Well, I knew Mark from the Sun Bazaar world. Um uh, And, you know, we, we ran into each other all the time and, you know, I, uh, we, you know, I, I would, sometimes I would go to the studio and hang out with them and, um, I think that the first thing we did together was maybe, um, I don't remember what it was. Oh, he was doing this, um, he made this album under the name Mark and the Mambas, called and uh, which came out under the uh it was called Torment and Toreros. And he asked me if I would um, write music, record a backing track or write a song for him to sing on, which was a song called A Million Manias. And I think that was the first maybe that was the first thing we did together then we did a couple of other things maybe and around that time i don't remember remember the exact sequence of this but um soft cell when they played live um they did a version of ghost the suicide song ghost rider and so dave recorded the backing track of that and then when they did it live I did it as we did it as a duet, me and Mark. And so I would come out with soft Cell for the encore and we would do ghost rider. Um, so that, you know, there were various different things we were doing around the same time. And Mark was, um, Mark was very easy to work with. Um, he was really pretty open to everything that I would write. And he could come into the studio and just sit down with his notebook and start, um, banging out lyrics. And then go in and um, start putting down vocal takes and was very open to, you know, my manipulating the voice and so on. And um, so at a certain point, we decided to do an EP, which was uh, the, the songs, the three songs that came out as a, a kind of a Flesh Volcano EP. And it was it was later um, expanded with um, the addition of other collaborations that we'd done um, mm-hmm. into album length. Yes. Uh, and so yeah, it was great to work with him and uh, and uh and then we finally have done have worked together again. Um it was about 2 years ago, but um this project it hasn't come out yet, but um Hal Wilner produced an album which is a tribute to Mark Bolan and he asked me to do a couple of arrangements. And I did these kind of chamber arrangements with Simon Haynes and um, and one of them is sung by Mark Almond.
0: Fantastic.
1: Uh, and so that's that's coming out uh, in 2020, I believe.
0: And which Mark Almond songs were they?
1: Well, that's a Mark Boland song.
0: Oh, Mark Boland, yeah. not Mark. Sorry, uh, <laughs> sorry I was getting mixed up with my Marks. Yeah, so what Mark Boland song was that?
1: Uh, that was, um, what song was it? It was... Um, Oh, it was Whatever Happened to the Teenage Dream.
0: Oh. Ah, blimey. That is fantastic. I mean, have you managed, because one of the things that often catches people out is kind of the ownership of music. Did you manage to navigate that kind of interesting and sometimes murky world of publishing and sort of um, who owns what?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I don't own the rights to the Sun Bizarre stuff, but I own the rights to everything else. Yes. Uh, except for the, I, I signed to Sony for one album. I don't own the rights to that, but I think I'm, I'm going to license it back to them and um, release it on vinyl. It never came out on vinyl, so we're in the process of talking about that. I have, you know, I have my own quite active label, um, but I also work with a bunch of other labels depending on the project. And there's certain, certain, um, there's certain things that are that are better to be on other labels because they're going to reach a different audience. Um, like, for example, the the album I just made with Simon Steensland is coming out on Ipecac, Mike Patton's label, and then the Zordox albums came out on Editions Amigo, um, and then my more um, serious music I'm more likely to put out on a different label um, because I want to reach that, you know, a more classical audience.
0: Yes, the or, wi- the or, wire
1: reader, who, um... Um, well, I mean, I'm pre- that's the wire reader is kind of my audience anyway, but I I more more the type of person that is um uh sort of deeply into the you know contemporary classical world.
0: Yes, and and sort of realising that um, us fans love sort of stuff, like whether it's film, books. Have you managed to sort of catalogue and keep a sort of track of all your sort of work and artwork? To Because um, one day I'm sure you'll be sort of thinking, I must put out a book about my, my life in music and art.
1: Yeah, I do want to do a memoir, um, and I really feel like I should start it now because it's probably going to take 10 years to do it, and um, I don't know was if- how, at what rate I'm losing brain cells. But, um, but I, um, yeah, I plan to do that, and I do have an extensive archive of everything that I've done. Um, and uh, so I, there's, there's, there's three books that I have planned, and one, one's an art book, one's a lyric book, and one's a memoir.
0: Fantastic. That is so well-organised. Because your mm. art has always, I mean, you've been very conscious of all the covers and all the sort of the... the, the image of the the music and the band especially features yeah. so yeah, you yeah. so you must look back and think god thank god i paid attention because there are certain bands that you think they're great but their albums are dreadful i'm thinking of the chameleons their album covers are terrible but a great band but um, <laughs> but, but but your artwork is is just spot on isn't it and i would imagine the original pieces would be amazing to see in a exhibition
1: Mostly, I do do most of it digitally, so there's not really originals to be had, but there are, and the mechanicals from those early records, I have no idea where they went. I did a lot of those by hand, but I do have sketches of some of that stuff, and, uh, um, but also I I do fine art as well. I mean, at the moment, I'm doing a series of screen screen prints. It's a set of six, and I've done four so far, and I just sell them exclusively on my website And I've done, um, you know, just various paintings and sculptures and so on. And, you know, one day it'll all uh, be collected.
0: Fantastic. Well, and just lastly, just one last, what would you say to a kind of um, your 18 year old self or just an 18 year old or something that you think, God, that's something that I've learned through sort of being on this planet and something that I didn't realize when I was quite young, but would have been really useful to have had somebody whisper in my ear,
1: even if you ignored it. Um, let's see, I would say maybe, um, practice humility and gratitude and, uh, and don't drink too much.
0: That's fair enough. Actually, I remember there's a person I follow called Scott Galloway and he mentioned those two out of those three. Mm. Um, so, um, it's a good one to have, isn't it? It's the end of it.
1: Who's Scott Galloway? Pardon? And who's that?
0: Scott Galloway. He seems to sort of, I don't know. I suppose he he probably was in business in his younger days, but now sort of talks about sort of the change in economic and political times and social and cultural times. Um, he's all over the sort of, I don't know, the social media world. But he he sort of says quite interesting things. I mean, a lot of it is directed towards, I suppose, the future of different business and where we're going in the world of... Am- he's obsessed with Amazon and eBay, not eBay, Facebook and, you know, the... He calls them you know those kind of the the main influences in our society so i suppose he he does comment on those a lot but um he does but um yes but he he also through being on this planet and having many ups and then many downs has has uh, probably changed his direction a lot in life
1: well i think it's i think it's in person it's it's important to i mean what i what it took me a while to learn is um i mean i i feel like i've always evolved musically um and there's there's been points where in my life where i've had to take stock of things and now i'm very conscious of um of uh you know i've never really wanted to repeat myself um too much but there's but the but you can't necessarily say everything that you want to say within one piece of music or within one statement that needs to be explored a bit sometimes and expanded but um uh i i used to want to try and um to uh you know kind of encapsulate the entire history of recorded music in one album i don't feel the need to do that anymore um but i feel that but i have so much more that i want to say musically and in you know in the expression of my art i just uh hope that i have time to to say it all you know um but i have about i'm I've got these two albums finished and I have about eight albums um, on the works at the moment um, subsequent to that. And uh, there's plenty more to come.
0: That's a lot of that. That's a lot of material. That's a- yeah. That's, that's quite amazing. So, look, well, thank you ever so much for sort of giving me the time for this. This has been, you know, fantastic. And I'm pleased eventually to have, um, yes, lined it up.
1: Yeah, um, sorry it's taken so long. And sorry I had to cancel um, a couple of weeks ago.
0: No, that's fine. I mean, you know, it's the one thing that sort of happens in my life. I sort of had one of those dreadful moments a few years ago where you had to you know have an opera well like, yeah you know, in my case it was an operation and then a few weeks ago last week i had a sort of scan just to keep a check on how things were and you just realize well you know it's a kind of game changer when your health sort of gets um, sometimes comes up with some sort of interesting and sort of yeah sort yeah. of quite hard moments really but yeah, yeah. Um, that's life isn't it but look,
1: you, did you say you live in norwich yes mm, okay
0: did you have you ever done sort of a tour of east anglia
1: um no I don't think I've ever I don't I don't think I've ever played in Norwich I don't think I don't, don't think I've ever been there to be honest
0: No but obviously you've you've obviously toured when you were sort of in various kind of um incarnations of different bands Yeah brands.
1: not that much not that much in the UK to be honest yeah I mean um probably a lot more in Europe but it's surprisingly less than you'd think in the UK. Yeah, but you were
0: sort of here recently, weren't you? In um, what's that? There a cafe that you played at. Oh, cafe no.
1: Auto. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I play. I'm in London every year, pretty much. Uh, I played at Cafe Auto. I was actually in London twice this year, I think. Um, no, no, no. I was in. I last year I played at um, Corsica with my Zordox project. This year I played. Um, at uh, Cafe Auto with my Silver Mantis project and I also um, put together a string quartet for Helm, uh, this guy Luke Younger who has a project called Helm and we did that um, two nights before um, the Silver Mantis thing and then I'm going to be back in April um, uh, doing a a new project which is just under the name JG Tharwell plus Ensemble which is um, Kind of a chamber version of some of my some of the fetus material and wise blood material um which i've 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 done very rarely I've done it twice in new york and um but ne- but in twenty twenty i'm gonna be doing it in london and uh in australia and then uh I might be back in the fall um of twenty twenty in london to do um to play with zordox Fantastic. Uh, So, yeah, I do, I do make it there, but it's, I don't really tour. I mean, I play isolated shows. I'll play in London and New York and not much outside of that Uh, because, um, uh, traveling is touring is just, um, uh, it's hard to do, you know, it's, it's hard to do and it's hard for me to be away from, um, writing all the time. Um, because I have to, you know, I because I because I write stuff for TV, I have a lot of deadlines, and because I have a lot of albums that I'm working on, I don't like to this. It's hard to be creative when you're touring.
0: Yes, I would imagine it's impossible. Yeah, this is horrendous, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, well, look, I do have to say, just um, there's a track on now which I think is amazing Enter the Exterminator. Oh, yeah, <laughs> I still love that song, it's, okay, it still rocks. I think, I think- it's. It's it's a good one. I mean, when you go back and re- and and play any of these or, or sort of uh, perform any, are there particular ones that you always think, yeah, that's that's a dead cert?
1: Well, on the on the JG Thirl and ensemble thing, we're doing um, we're doing "I'll Meet You in Poland, Baby," "Throne of Agony," um, and uh, from that era, also i had Someone Drown in My Pool," which is from my Wiseblood project. And also Cold Day in Hell, which is also on um, Hole. So we are, I am revisiting those, but it, but they're heavily rearranged, and they're rearranged for the instrumentation of um, piano, harp, viola, and acoustic guitar. So it's a very different sound.
0: It's it's the fans will love it. They're going to love it, aren't they?
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, it's quite nice to hear reinterpretations of material, you know, because sometimes. I don't know. I remember Joni Mitchell brought out an album out where she sort of, you know, sort of redid a lot of her early stuff. And um, it had a different, a really melancholic kind of sadness to it, which I mean, it was always a bit melancholic, but this was incredibly melancholic. And I quite liked it. That's my favorite emotion.
1: Mm. Well, this material works really well. And I like performing it in this way because it it shows that these are actually um, well-constructed songs. (laughs)
0: Fantastic. Well, look. Well, I have all the best for next year and next decade. I hope yeah. it goes well, and I hope you manage to uh, get all the material out there as quickly as you can. Because yeah, yeah.
1: thank you, David.
0: Well, look. Thank you ever so much for your time, and have a great um, afternoon and evening. Okay. You. You too. Okay. Take care. Thanks again. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye
1: bye. Bye.